one. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. Sounds like we have an echo. Um, glad you're with us this morning. That sounds really cool, but we don't want to have that continue. There we go. Um, we are in a series in Revelation as a church, and we are in chapter 19, making our way through this wonderful book. Trust, uh, given that it's God's word, given that God loves his precious people, he loves us, I trust that he's speaking to you and encouraging you. This book is supposed to function in our lives in a way that blesses and helps us. Um, it's not a curiosity. Um, it's not to kind of have different wild theories about the end times. Uh, it's meant to strengthen us now certainly to inform us about God's overall plan. I, I trust that it's doing that as we go through uh, as a church. And by the way, if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. We as a church, um, we get together, um, not because we hold things in common, uh, not because we just simply like to be spiritual or religious. We are together because God is real and alive, and his word works. He calls us to himself and he calls us to one another to be his people. And so we pray as you visit with us, you would sense God and his word and his goodness. So we're in Revelation chapter 19 and I want to start out um, before we jump into the text just to ask, has anybody here seen the movie A Bug's Life? 1998 hit movie. Yes, you can, you can go to the next picture. Uh, it's a classic story. Um, and it follows actually a classic genre of story, um, but the story itself, it's about this peaceful colony of ants, and, and, and life is pretty good for the ants except for this gang of evil grasshoppers. And to the ants, these are giant evil grasshoppers, uh, and they demand their food supply every year, and then what happens one year, the, the, the whole plans get messed up. It's partly the fault of one of the characters, an, an ant named Flick, um, he's kind of a misfit inventor type, um, and basically the, the grasshoppers say, we're going to come back, and you have to have everything ready, and we're going to eat, we're going to take it all, and, and the ants are realizing this may be the end of our colony, and so they're terrorized, but Flick comes up with this idea to, to recruit a, a, uh, a bunch of heroes to come in and somehow fight the grasshoppers, and so he ends up recruiting a ragtag group of, uh, of out-of-work circus bugs, um, and they come and they fight the evil grasshoppers in different ways. There's lots of twists and turns to the, the storyline. But eventually what happens is, is the grasshoppers are dealt with. The evil grass, grasshoppers are dealt with. Um, the, the good guys win. And evil is judged in the story. There's a, a judgment, a conclusion. Actually, the, the ringleader, the, the evilest of evil grasshoppers named Hopper, uh, who wants to kill the queen and flick and, and all, do all these terrible things, he meets his end in the movie. You guys remember how he, he dies? The bird, right? He, he thinks it's a joke and he taunts the bird while the bird ends up feeding him to uh, the, the bird's chicks. And that's the end of Hopper. So the, the bad guys are dealt with and then the movie ends with this wonderful celebration of the colony being restored and, and the heroes being lifted up. There's this grand celebration. It's a great ending to a, a good movie. Well, why do I tell you this story? Well, these sorts of stories, whether they're in movies or books, have something about them that attracts us. And I think that attraction is, is built in to 
to living in this world, and it's built in certainly to knowing God and knowing what He's like. We long for a day when the bad guys get dealt with, when evil will be dealt with finally and fully. We live in some ways like the ants in the colony, subjected to just the sin and darkness of this world. And we long for a day when it gets dealt with, and we long for a day when salvation and peace would come. And that's not just a story. It's reality. It's the ultimate story. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation, this ultimate story of God judging evil and bringing salvation. And as we near the end of this book, we're going to see kind of the fullness of it. We've been getting glimpses, right, in all the different vision cycles. We see that each cycle kind of progresses that way. And there's judgment and there's, there's celebration. But it's going to intensify and it's going to fill out. We're going to kind of see the full picture. And now in chapter 19, as we kind of turn the corner to the fullness and finality of it all, we get to see more of a picture of this, this final celebration, the celebration of God's righteous judgment and glorious salvation. I think that's what this section of Scripture teaches us. And so let's pray, and then we'll read, and we'll dig in. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that better than any story we may ever encounter is a story in Your Word. And Lord, we live in a sin-soaked world and there's evil around us in our own hearts. And Lord, we long for eradication of evil. We long for salvation. We long for justice. We long for these things and that's from You. And thank You, Lord, that there's a truth that You are God and You will deal with these things and You will bring full salvation. And I pray as we look at Your Word, would You... Open up our eyes to see what you see and to live in light of these truths. Lord, so often as we already visited uh, in worship today, we, we forget and we get our focus on how we feel and other things. We need to look to you and what you're doing. So open up our eyes and change our lives in light of this. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Read with me chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. John is seeing vision after vision here, and so he says in chapter 19, verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small, and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. God's word from Revelation 19, 1 through 10. Pardon me and my cold getting better, but still dealing with it. Try not to cough in the mic here. I believe this section of Scripture teaches us to live each day, to live each day for the sure hope of God's final and glorious conclusion. To live each day for the, the sure hope of this final and glorious conclusion, this final celebration where evil is judged and the faithful are rescue, rescued and rewarded forever. So I want to look at just those two things, celebrating his judgment and then celebrating his salvation. That's how this section of Scripture is broken down. So first, celebrating his judgment. As we start into chapter 19, you'll notice that the word hallelujah occurs. If you count, it actually occurs four times, maybe five, because praise our God is the same, uh, just in a different form. Four different times within a short amount of verses. I think it's telling. Actually, it's used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. The word hallelujah is used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. Now, it occurs frequently in the Old Testament. And it's a word that simply means praise Yahweh. Praise ye, it's plural, everybody, you all, pl- praise God and Yahweh in his, in his covenant name. But it isn't just simply praise God. Um, we say that at times. It, it, it carries with it in, in Scripture and, and here this sense of a call to the whole group to jubilant celebration. That's the idea here. When you say hallelujah, you're not just saying, oh, God's good, praise him. It's everybody celebrate and dance and sing about how great God is. That's what hallelujah means. It's, it's this whole idea of a call for the whole group to just celebrate who God is. And that's what's going on here. Um, and we, we read, too, that it's happening in the context. There's, there's a, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. We see that in verse 1. And then uh, we're going to see in verse 6 as well as they celebrate his salvation. There's a loud noise, and it's described as the roar of many waters, the mighty peals of thunders. It's the sort of sound that happens when you have a countless multitude praising God and making noise. Have you guys ever been to a stadium or sports stadium and heard kind of that, that, that loud noise. Now usually it's over a touchdown or something like that. In, in heaven and maybe on earth at some point soon even, uh, we, we will see uh, loud, uh, large crowds loudly proclaiming God's glory and goodness. That's, that's what's going on here. The, there's just this deafening roar of celebration of what God has done. That's what's going on. It's high praise. It's a great multitude lifting up God and His glory for what He's done. It's a, it's a countless multitude. This is likely the, the, the whole host of heaven. This is the final number of the redeemed, the final number of the elect. It's a countless number. It's beyond counting. It's large. It's huge. It's all of God's redeemed celebrating. But they're joined by not, not only one another, but they're joined by the 
24 elders and the, and the four living creatures, these holy angels that minister in the presence of God and worship Him all the time, they join in as well, shouting hallelujah and amen. And then there's a voice from the throne itself. It's likely a, an angel speaking on God's behalf, but it's from the throne. So the idea is, is right from the throne itself is a call to worship, to praise God, to all His servants, you uh, you who fear him, small and great. So there's a call from the throne itself to join in worship and celebration of what God has done. That's what's going on here. So just take, you know, the greatest celebration you've ever known, maybe the sound from a stadium when the home team scores a touchdown, add fireworks and music and multiply it by like a gazillion. That's what the picture is here. That's why it's using this word hallelujah four times. It wants you to understand the, the magnitude of the celebration. Now, what are they celebrating? Well, it says it right in our text. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're celebrating all these attributes of God. For His judgments are true and just. And He's judged the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. They're celebrating God's glory and power in His judgments, in His justice. His just, justice, His judgments are true and just. They're perfect, they're right. There's a celebration of God finally and fully dealing with evil. <coughs> That's what they're worshiping God for. That's what they're celebrating. They're, they're celebrating the fact that He's justly and finally judged this great prostitute in Babylon. Now we learned last week that this great prostitute, also called Babylon, uh, this is, is an evil city of godless humanity. It really represents all of humanity in its godlessness, all of humanity that would walk in their own way apart from God. It represents all such cities and towns, cultures and kingdoms that have participated in the great evils of, of living for themselves, not for God and His glory. And where that goes, it goes to all sorts of places, from the very mild sorts of sins to very serious sins, but it's all spiritual adultery. It's all rebellion against God. It's all a willful, thoughtful, intentional, heartfelt rebellion against God, whether it's in the form of re false religions, where we try to make ourselves feel and look good before God and others, not on God's terms, but ours, or whether it's blatant and heinous sin, such as... as genocide and things like that. The whole, the whole spectrum really is the same thing. It's spiritual adultery. It's rebellion against God. It's living life our own way. So that characterizes this city, but also with that comes persecution of God's good and holy people. And really the persecution of God's people is, is a, an attempt at God because God's holy people, as ones who have fled to God and His grace, have turned from their sin and their rebellious ways and depended on God, um, and said, we want to follow you now. That's an, an insult. It's a, it's a thorn in the flesh of those who would rebel against God. So this city is judged by God, rightly and truly. And they're celebrating His justice in the final eradication of this evil, demonically inspired humanity. Now, maybe as you listen, you thought, I like this celebration thing. Cool. Sounds of crowds and celebrating, but when you got to what they were celebrating, it kind of like changed the moment. It kind of put a damper on things. I think we as Westerners struggle with the idea of celebrating judgment. 
And I, I think there's some valid reasons for that and some reasons that aren't valid. Now, a valid reason, one, I think, that we struggle with is we look at our own sins and failures and think, who am I to judge? And you're right. Because we are part of that crowd that has lived in rebellion against God. We have done the same things and worse. When I look at my own life and my history and in my own, even my own present struggles and temptations, I see one who deserves such judgment. I look around at my friends and my family members that don't yet know Christ, have not yet fled to Christ, and I know that I'm worse than them. And so I feel like, who am I to judge? I think we all feel that that's valid. There's another side to it, though, that we struggle with, is is we can have a very high view of humanity. And this is where we go wrong. We have a high view of humanity and we think that humans are innately good and don't deserve such treatment. And we tend to elevate humanity and we, and we put God down for this. We say, you know, how could you do this, God? There must be something wrong with you. We get that so backwards. And, and that's part of why we struggle. We, we struggle with this. We look and think, well, why, why would this happen? Well, how can they be celebrating such a thing? And, and, and yet they are. In, in the end, they are. The answer to this is, is, is not to, to somehow try to create a theology that gets around it, to somehow avoid revelation. I'm just not going to read these chapters because I, I can't deal with that. Or to somehow diminish what actually happens in his judgment. Well, it's maybe not as bad. Or to, or to the other side, to blame God. The answer's not there. There's no answer there. That's a dead end. It's a false thing. And the answers that our culture gives us, the answers that compromised Christianity give us are dangerous wrong answers. Don't go there. Now, I understand your struggle. Just so you know, there was a time in my life where I just about walked away from God over this issue. I understand your struggle, but the answer is not to go to these false things. The answer is to go to God. The answer is to realize that God himself is so different from us. That he himself has the right to judge. You see, the only one who could truly judge, right? Because if we look at ourselves, who are we to judge? I'm, I'm worse than many of them. How can I judge? Well, the only one who can judge is someone who is perfectly and always good. Completely good in every way. Completely innocent. Completely, thoroughly wise. Perfectly just and almighty. That person is God himself. God has the right to judge, and he judges rightly. His judgments are just and true and good and worthy of salvation. Now, we ourselves look to him. We don't take revenge ourselves. Romans 12 teaches us. It says, repay no one evil for evil. We have this verse to put up. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is my, mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He has the right to repay. We don't have a right. He is good and just in this. And so he brings judgment, and it's a good one. It's just and it's true, and it's celebrated by the saints. Because it's right. God is good and worthy of praise for his 
justice. Now we're going to work through some of the other issues I brought up as we go through, so hang on. I want you to notice, too, something that we don't like. Another, so I'm, if I'm on the topic of offensive things in Scripture, here's something else. The smoke from her goes up for just a couple days. No, forever and ever. Now, his judgment here is against a system, a, 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 an entirety of something. Um, it's a city, and, and it's, not, it's not right here about individuals, but individuals make up that system, that culture. And we're going to see later on that they're all individuals are judged and part of this whole judgment. And it's important to understand, as we wrestle with these things, just to face the truth that God's just punishment on those who refuse him and forge their own way and live in their own rebellion is eternal. It's eternal. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Let me tell you plainly that I don't think Scripture offers any hope for the end of the punishment of those who have persisted in evil and rebellion. It offers no hope. Don't invent things Scripture doesn't say. There's no second chance. There's no ability to repent once you evict. Those things are not in Scripture. They're false things. There's no hope. Scripture doesn't give us hope. There's nothing there. It does not teach that the wicked are simply annihilated. It doesn't say that. There's no place in Scripture that you can really go. You can try to make things up here and there, but it's not there. As you look through Scripture, as it speaks of the justice of God, it uses phrases like the smoke never stopping, the worm never dying, the fire never quenched, everlasting contempt, everlasting destruction, day and night forever. Those are the phrases that are used to describe this. There's no place here for temporary judgment. It's eternal. And those places where it uses that sort of eternal wording, often it's contrasted with the eternal blessedness of those who have fled to Christ. So if judgment's not eternal in your mind, then neither can be salvation. You can't have it both ways. Scripture is clear on this. I do that, I say that because it's scriptural. I do that and say that because it's best for you to face that reality. And there are biblical answers for it, real answers, here in our text and elsewhere. It's right in our text. They are celebrating God's judgments. They're not saying, God, your judgments are over the top. They're overboard. Why? Why do this? They're not saying those things. They're celebrating the justice of his judgment. So we need to understand that this judgment, it's eternal, but it's just, it's right, it's good. When you are there and you see everything and you see God in all his glory and you see his salvation, you're not going to say, whoa, God, that just wasn't right. You're going to celebrate with the crowd that it's just. And I'm sure there'll be all sorts of things going through your mind and heart at that, at that moment. Just let me stay on the topic that it's just. It's just. It's proportioned. It's not disproportionate. I think the medieval idea of hell has done us great harm. I don't know if you read, anyone read Dante's Inferno? I've, I've read it. You know, it's, it's twisted, it's bizarre, and that's not what it's like. I don't know all the details, 
But it's just, it's proportioned. And we, and we see in Scripture that it's proportioned according to what people have done. Some will receive harsher punishment than others. So you can look in Luke 12, 47-48. Jesus says, he's speaking it's in a parable, but I think it applies to this. He says, and that, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Matthew 11, he's speaking to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And he says, guys, you've seen me. You've seen my miracles. It's going to be tougher for you on Judgment Day than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they saw Jesus, and yet they still rebelled. They still persisted in the rebellion. So there's a proportion, a proportionality in punishment. Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is the message of Revelation as well. To hear the goodness of salvation, to taste the grace of God in Jesus, and to live in it, even just in community, maybe you're not yet a believer, and taste and touch of it, and then to walk away is the very worst thing. Because you know better. And the punishment that you receive is very severe. And I don't want you to receive it. So run to Jesus. Revelation 20 teaches us that each one is judged by what he has done. So it's proper measure. It's not unjust. It's just right in its justice and goodness. It is eternal. And let me make it clear that no one in hell is going to be happy. In my days when I was living in my rebellion, I thank God for his mercy because I had two friends who died. I, if I had died at that moment in my life, I would be facing judgment, just judgment. And I remember those saying things like, you know, I want to go to hell because that's where all my buddies will be. I don't want to go to heaven. Nobody's going to be in hell and be glad of it. No one's going to be suffering those judgments and be glad in it. Now, neither would a person in hell, I think, be happy in heaven. Because heaven isn't a grand amusement park for ourselves. It's better than that. It's a grand place where God is at the core and center of everything. And you see him in all his glory and you love him with your whole heart. And you enjoy him and you love others for his sake in in the ways that you've always desired as his people. And it's without limit. But it's God-centered. And so, so someone who has lived their whole life intent on living for themselves, defining life by their own terms and and snubbing God, doesn't want to be in heaven because that's what it's all about. But neither are they going to be happy in hell. They will get justice. They will get God's justice. And it will be right and good. And it will be celebrated. It will be celebrated as the right thing. God will be glorified in it for His justice. It is right for God and good for Him to punish self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-deifying, self 
ish beings who have corrupted the beautiful and glorious image of God in them by their willful and continual denial of God and, and their denial of depending on God. Now, you, you need to hear something here. It's very important if you've yet to put your faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that you simply need to be good to earn your way to heaven. None of us can do that. What God requires is not for you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get your act in order. That's not, he never requires that. God always gives grace before he calls us to do anything. That's the history of all of Scripture. And he's given you grace. The fact that you're here and you're alive and you're experiencing so many good things. And He loves you, and He gives this grace so that you would recognize His grace and His goodness and your need for Him. The reason there are troubles in your life are not because God hates you, because He loves you and He wants you to turn to Him. He wants you to recognize, He wants you to come to the end of yourself before the end comes, that you might turn to Him and depend on Him. The difference between those who are judged eternally and those who are rescued eternally is simply humility. Simply the recognition, I need help. I need you, God. And I want you, God. I want to follow you. I want to give up on this old way. And I want to follow you. Rescue me from myself. That's the difference. Now with that comes a new life, and a new life that changes us step by step to be more and more like Jesus. The good news is Christ has come for us to rescue us from this. But that's the difference. I want you to hear that. And those who have turned and fled will, will be with the Lord and celebrate His rescue and celebrate His just judgment. So I want you guys to understand these truths. I want us to live in light of them. It's for our good. It is not helpful. It is not good to turn to false things. Guys, there's some stuff out there that's just not helpful. There are some popular Christian teachers that are denying the eternality of hell. They're even ridiculing the traditional, the historic teaching of it. I mean the biblical one, not the unbiblical ones. That's not helpful. Don't listen to them. Don't go near them if you're going to be influenced by it. It's unhelpful. It's untrue. You don't want people who ridicule truth. You don't want to be around them. It's the most unhelpful thing there can be. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor? And you said, doctor, you know, my heart, I'm having chest pains. When I breathe, it really hurts. I feel faint and I feel dizzy. And I have the doctor say, ha, oh, that's funny. You know, people used to believe that you, you could actually have this thing called a heart attack, but we know it's just not true. You know, it doesn't. You, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. That's silly. You want to go to that doctor? No. You want to go to a doctor who says, it sounds like you're having a heart attack. Let me get you some help. There's help. And there's help in Jesus. That's the good news. There's, there's help in Jesus. There's, there's rescue in Jesus. See, the good news is that the justice of God for my sin and my rebellion and your sin and your rebellion, this, this justice that requires the eternity to pay, was poured out on God himself. Amazing love. That God himself, in, in recognizing his justice and goodness and recognizing your sin, came as God the Son, took on flesh, lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, never failed to him, never failed to love his Father, never failed to love others. 
gave his life, poured out his life in love and in holiness and goodness and, and had to face no penalty but eternal exaltation for his faithfulness and yet chose in that place, he himself chose, he himself chose to give up his life when it was time and to go to that cross, to go to the cross and to on the cross while experiencing terrible physical pain, to experience the very worst spiritual pain there could be, bearing himself the just penalty for your sin and rebellion, for mine, for all who would turn to him. So, so think an eternality of hell and righteous judgment multiplied by billions poured out on Jesus. That's what he was doing on the cross as he as a man and as God himself, for only God, the eternal, infinite being, could bear such judgment, bore judgment in himself on the cross so that you don't have to. And then he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death, victorious over this judgment for your sake, so that you simply by turning and trusting could have judgment, just judgment, removed from you. Not only is the penalty paid, though, but the power of sin is now broken in your life. If you've turned to Christ, there's new life in Christ. He's in you, and the power is broken. You don't have to say yes anymore. You can say no. Thank God for that. And you know what else is good news behind the scenes? That his plan all along was to rescue you, and his plan all along is to actually remove the very presence of sin from your life. And he's going to accomplish that plan if you are truly his. He will remove that, that sin in your life. It won't be present anymore. You'll be free, finally, and fully free on that final day. And it will be glorious to love him like you want to love him, to love others like you want to love others. That's the, the glory, and that's what's going on in our celebration here. There's a celebration of his rescue, a celebration of his judgments, and as I said earlier, I'm sure there's a lot going through the minds of the people I know on that day, I think from my mind, I'm going to be thinking, Lord, that is just, your judgments are just, but if it had not been for your mercy, I would be right there, and I probably deserve to lead the pack. There'll be this, this worship, I think, and this celebration and this gratitude, but a recognition that everything he does is right and good and wise and just and worthy of praise. And so John, in this chapter, hears the Alleluia. And the second part, the celebration of the salvation of the bride. Oh. Help me, Lord, to do this in a short amount of time. Verses 6 through 10. The celebration is also glorious. It's loud and jubilant. And the same sorts of words are used here. The same sorts of things are being said. And they're celebrating that the rain has come and the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. So let me talk a little bit about that. Because you might be thinking, okay, they're celebrating the rain and the marriage supper, but I thought that God already reigned. So why is it now that they're celebrating his reign? Well, God does already reign. He, he's reigned all the time. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We know in Matthew 28, Jesus uh, has been given all authority in heaven and earth, so we know that. But also 1 Corinthians 15.25 teaches us that he's reigning now and he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So the reality is he's reigning, but he hasn't finished the work yet. 
and there's still those who rebel and oppose him. There's humanity that does that. There's the devil and his minions. We've been seeing that, right? We, we, we see the systems of the world, the kings and the cultures of this world. We see this, the dragon himself, Satan. That's the story of Revelation, isn't it? Of, of he's reigning, and yet there's opposition. And so there's an there's a already and not yet aspect to his reign. And so here, what's going on, it's the, the finish. So now it's already and not yet. He's reigning, but there's still struggle. Here it's done. His reign is full. It's final. It's complete. It's overall. It's glorious. That's what they're celebrating. Second part, the, the marriage supper of the Lord. And you might be thinking, well, I thought we already were the bride of Christ. We're taught in Scripture that that's true. God has always, always considered his people, his people of faith, his people of dependence on him as the bride, as his bride. It's always been th that case. But, but there's a difference here. It fits in with the already, not yet. Um, I think we need to understand that this is written to a, an ancient audience and how they did marriage is a little different. This factors into our story. So for us, right, I mean, you get married, um, you're married at the ceremony, boom, you celebrate, and you know, it's a one day, four hour occurrence or whatever, or less than that, 30 minutes. Hopefully your, your ceremony is not four hours. Um, <coughs> Well, I've been to some that approach that. Uh, not for me. Anyhow, it, so ancient marriage was different. Um, the way that it worked is you, you, the couple was first betrothed to one another. It's like an engagement, but way more. And there was a, a ceremony that went with that, and there were vows that went with that. But it was like an engagement. Uh, you weren't fully married, but you were legally married. But you weren't completely married yet. And so you were still lived separately. You didn't live, you didn't consummate your marriage, you still were separate, but you were engaged. And then what happened in the, until the final ceremony was the, the bride, the groom, sorry, the groom would raise the dowry for the bride. So there was a price to be paid for that bride. That's how it worked. And so he would work, and it might take a year or more to, to raise that dowry price. Once he had the full price, then he would give it to the family of the bride, and now it was time to celebrate. And there would be a celebration where the groom would come from his house, with his friends, and they'd be just singing and shouting and partying on the way to the bride's house. The bride would have got herself ready. She probably in that dowry time and afterwards would have bought some expensive clothing and the wedding dress. And when the groom arrives with his friends there at the house, she would come out and be with him. And then he would walk to his house with her. And then at his house, they'd have a celebration. They'd have a big meal. <coughs> and everyone would be there. And it would sometimes go on for seven days. Can you imagine a wedding feast like that? And, and, and so the, the, you know, the first night, the, the couple's together now. They're consummated in their marriage. It's a fullness. But they're still there for seven days. I don't know if I would want to do that. Once the, I'd rather be doing the honeymoon myself. But anyhow, that's how they did it. Uh, seven days of celebration. That's behind Revelation 19. And so they're celebrating the, the final celebration. They're celebrating that now the groom has come. The price has been paid on, on the cross, the blood of Christ himself, given for his bride. He paid the ultimate price. Salvation for us is free. Isn't it amazing? Completely free. All you need to do is turn and trust. It's free. But it cost him an infinite amount, his death on the cross. He paid that price so that he could win us to himself. And he's, he's coming back for us, and there'll be a final celebration. That's what's going on here. The bride will be made ready at that point. How is she made ready? Well, she is clothed here, right? She's granted, it's been granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
So she's, she's beautiful. She's ready. And it says, the, the linen, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So that's in verse 8. It's interesting, it says it was granted her to clothe herself. Do you catch that? Granted her? That's a word of grace. She's been given grace. The bride, the church, all of God's people over all time have been given grace. Now that righteous, the robe that we wear in part are the righteous, it's the righteousness of Christ himself, a righteousness that we can never even come close to. We wear through faith in him. And when God looks at us, he sees glory. He sees Christ. He sees righteousness. He says, beautiful and glorious. I love you. But also there are the righteous deeds of the saints. For when Christ is in you, not only does he stand uh, and make you righteous through him and his life, pay for your sins, but you are uh, empowered by him to live a life of righteous deeds. And so the bride over all time throughout history from the time that Christ ascended to when he returns for judgment, has been making herself ready with righteous deeds. Guys, I want, to he- I want you to hear in this something that's for you and be reminded that when the Lord looks at you and your deeds through simple faith, as small as they may feel at times, those are deeds that adorn the bride. And he says, beautiful, glorious. And, and the Savior, when he sees at the end, he sees these things, he's going to say, my bride is beautiful. So all the things you guys do, your simple faith just to hold on to Jesus, when everything around you is saying, go somewhere else, let go, and you say, no, I won't let go. I don't have salvation. I don't have life in anything but Jesus. I'm just going to simply hold on, even though I, I can't figure anything else out. That is beautiful to the Lord. When you pour out your prayers day and night, for your family members, for others, for help for yourself, for the kingdom to come, for your neighbors to be touched, for your children to know the Lord and walk with the Lord, for a life that looks more like Jesus, these prayers are beautiful to Him. When you forgive others who've hurt you and offended you, when you believe the best of others, even when it seems you ought to do otherwise, when you pray for your persecutors, and those who treat you wrong, that is beautiful in his sight. When you work hard to help those around you, when you seek to honor God with your life and your work, wherever your work may be, as a, as a mom in the home or in a job or vocation, when you seek to earn a good wage through an honest living, when you use your talents for good, when you risk comfort and ease to maximize your contribution, even though it's hard, it's beautiful in his sight. When you worship in song, in thanksgiving, in a heart that desires to live in the joy of heaven, even when sorrowful, it is beautiful in His sight. Thank you, King of Grace Church, for how you are making the bride ready. It is beautiful in His sight. And guys, this is going to be a celebration like, unlike any other. It's a supper unlike any other. It's a wedding feast. There's good reason why we love weddings, isn't there? Who here has been to a wedding? Just about everybody, right? We love weddings. Who here loves weddings? Okay, I won't ask who doesn't love weddings. Um, But we love weddings, right? They're, They're wonderful times. Why? Why do we like weddings? Well, a few things, right? We're watching a couple come together. 
and pledge their lives and their love to one another. We see love on display in those vows and in the ceremonies. And it's beautiful. Also, people tend to look really good at weddings, right? They're wearing really nice clothes, the bride and groom and everyone else, so it looks good. And we watch them, and, and then there's dearly loved family and friends coming around them. They're coming together before their friends and before God. There's a sense of God at, at weddings, actually all weddings, even weddings where people don't believe in God. I still see the same sorts of, of glorious things because God's in all marriages. It's a beautiful thing. We see the Lord on display, and then the, you do the ceremony, and then it's time to celebrate, right? And usually there's great food, and there's fun and friendship together. You're together uh, to have fun. There's music, maybe dancing, um, celebration, and just enjoying time together, right? Um, we all love those, and, and uh, I was just thinking through, like, do I have a favorite? And I thought, you know, just about every wedding. It's just been great. I can't think of one that hasn't had these elements. Now, my own wedding is my favorite, by the way. And I don't just say that because my wife's going to see this later, um, because it's true. We had a great time, and it was glorious. But this is the ultimate wedding here. This is the ultimate celebration. And it doesn't ever end, actually. Uh, we celebrate the bridegroom coming for his bride, this marriage supper of the Lamb, the final judgment of God against evil. There's no more evil. Evil's gone. It's eradicated. It's justly dealt with forever. There's only reward and rescue for His people and celebration in His presence forever and ever. And that's why they say hallelujah. And brother and sister, you're going to say hallelujah as well. As the band comes up, let me ask you a couple things. Martin Luther said famously, there are two days in my calendar this day and that day. This day, what I have before me today, and this final day, where God judges evil and rescues and rewards his people. Do you live that way? Do you define this day by that day? That's what's going on here in Revelation. That's kind of the, the import, the intention that God has behind this. It's not just to say, wow, this is really cool stuff in Revelation. I love to kind of geek out on this theology and Bible stuff. No, it's meant to have an impact in our lives. It's meant to change our lives so that we live this day by that day because everything has to do with that day. Everything you do has to do with that day. Everything you do has to do with that day. And for us, if we rebel against God, there'll be judgment on that day. So the things that you do in rebellion, if you're fled to Jesus, everything you do is going to be rewarded. Everything for him, everything to make the bride beautiful will be blessed and rewarded and celebrated on that day. Everything has to do with that day. So how are you living today for that day? And just as we transition, as Jeff comes up, let me just ask you to take 30 seconds, just to maybe bow your head and say, Lord, is there something I can change about how I live this day? in light of that day. And we'll take communion.